Good morning, College Park. I'm excited to bring the word to you today. So let's pray before we open the word. Father God, thank you so much that you've sent your spirit to us, Father. Thank you so much that your spirit lives inside of us that guarantees our salvation. But also thank you so much that your spirit works through your word, Father, and illumines our eyes to our sin and gives us hope for the future. God, uh, again, work in our hearts today as we hear your word and give, give us grace for today to love you more and to love you uh, like we should. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So growing up in the suburbs of Detroit, I was like many kids, you know, uh, enjoyed the simple things in life, mac and cheese, climbing trees, and watching Saturday morning cartoons. I watched all the classics, Bugs Bunny, Tom and Jerry, Coyote and Roadrunner. And looking back, though, I remember there's something that was always really frustrating to me about some of these cartoons and some of the scenes that were in it. So we have like a villain that would, that would capture the hero of the show after a great long chase. Let's just call it, let's say it's Elmer Fudd. Would finally catch Bugs Bunny. You'd have him tied to a tree. And just when you think Bugs Bunny is finally about to meet his doom, Elmer Fudd in, inexplicably takes a time and kind of go, launches into a big monologue and then asks his victim, any last words? Only to be undone because... In asking this question, he's given his victim enough time to slip through the ropes or, or call for help and escape being made into rabbit stew. I never understood why they did this. You know, for some reason, the, these villains see it necessary to give their victims one last moment, one last thing, one last statement to say before they leave this world. And why, why do they do this after countless episodes of chasing? I really have no idea. But if you think about it, in our society, we take someone's last words very, very seriously. There's something really important about someone's last words. For example, in our criminal justice system, we see it necessary to give inmates on death row one final statement, one last word before their sentence is carried out. And when one of our loved ones passes away, one of the first questions we ask is, do you know what their last words were? Or what were their last words? Why do you think we do this? Why are someone's last words so important? I think we believe that in the final moments of someone's life on earth, something profound, something valuable will be said. That through the constant noise and flippant speech that permeates our world, someone's last words are actually worth listening to. We hope to hear something that has depth, something of impact, something that will really, that will carry with us, that's going to last. I wonder, have you ever thought about what your last words will be? What do you want to pass along to the next generation? What principles do you want them to live by? What voice do you want them to listen to? What truth will still be true long after you're gone? So this morning... We have the privilege of looking at a portion of the Apostle Peter's final letter to the church, a letter that many theologians call the Apostle Peter's last will and testament. Peter, again, he's most likely in Rome, awaiting his execution, wants to deliver a message to the church before he leaves his world. He wants to remind them of an authoritative voice in the midst of much clamor and confusion, a truth that will still be true 
even after he is gone. A truth that isn't from men, but it's from God. Much like our culture today, the apostles' message of salvation through Jesus Christ was one of many voices vying for the attention of the church. As the, apostle, I mean, as the gospel was proclaimed and spreading throughout the region, many false teachers have sprung up trying to tell the Christians that, hey, the, the apostles' message was false. They probably made it up. Specifically, they scoffed at the idea that Jesus would return just as the apostles and the prophets predicted. And since they didn't believe the apostles' teaching, they saw no need to pursue holiness, no need to listen to the apostles' word, and they could just listen to their flesh and do whatever they pleased. If you look in chapter 3, verses 4, we see what they will say. They say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So again, the argument is, hey, Jesus isn't coming back, so what are we doing here trying to live lives of holiness? Why, why do we have to deny ourselves all these pleasures of the world when there's no coming judgment? You know, if, if, the, if the coming judgment isn't actually happening, why don't we just live it up a little bit? You know, there's only one life to live. And you can understand how this message would be really, really confusing for the people of the church, especially because many of these people and many of these teachings were coming from amongst their midst. And there were, people were living lives that were kind of on the outset looked really, really tantalizing, things that they might want to do. And maybe for you, you've maybe thought or heard something similar. Maybe you've thought, you know, it's been, it's been 2,000 years. Is Jesus really coming back? You know, is is the, the, the message of the apostles, is it really true, or am I just believing a fair, fairy tale? Are the prophecies of Scripture actually still relevant, or should I just toss it out like the rest of the culture? Is pursuing holiness really worth it, and how can we know for sure? What voice, amongst all the voices, should we listen to? And wherever you're at in regards to these questions, I hope that as we look to our passage today, you will listen to Peter's last words. That you will listen to where he points to. That he points us to a sufficient word that will never fail, and that will never grow old. So then, what is Peter's last words, and what does he want us to listen to? Look at our passage. I want us to see two things that Peter tells us to listen to. The first, he says, listen to our testimony. And second, listen to the scriptures. And today I'm going to unpack why we should listen to these things and why it matters for your life. So first, let's look at Peter's testimony and the reasons he gives for why we should listen to it. First, we'll see that we should listen to Peter's testimony because it's rooted in history and not myth. Second, we'll see that it's rooted in eyewitness testimony. And lastly, we'll see that it's rooted in primary sources. So first... Peter wants us to understand that his testimony concerning Jesus Christ is rooted in a historical event and not in a myth. Look at verse 16 of 2 Peter chapter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we said earlier, Peter's letter was mainly a response to accusations from false teachers who had said the apostles' message of the coming Christ was a 
was a myth. In verse, Peter, uh, in verse 16, Peter vehemently opposes this accusation and makes known that what they taught the people was not a myth, but an objective truth rooted in history. And Peter knows how critical it is for their testimony to be rooted in history because what you think about the historicity of the Christian claims will change how you view how authoritative their call upon your life is. When I was growing up, my parents always read to me, and some of my favorite books were The Bernstein Bears. How many of you guys know The Bernstein Bears? Yeah, I probably had 50 of these books. I loved them. So my mom and dad, though, they never taught me that The Bernstein Bears or Frog and Toad or the Boxcar Children were actually real, but more or less, they wanted me to learn the nice moral lesson that was at the end of it. You know, it's, it's good to share. You know, don't watch too much TV or be nice to your sister. The fact that these stories were made up didn't, didn't really matter. You know, we got out of them what we wanted to get out of them. You know, and if one of the stories had uh, a message that we didn't like, my parents would just kind of toss it out. But unfortunately, this is how I think many of us and many of the people, maybe not us, but the people in our culture view the apostles' testimony rooted in Scripture. They may see many of the values of the moral lessons, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really have much bearing on their life. It doesn't have any authority over them. To them, it doesn't really matter if the Israelites actually crossed the Red Sea or if Jesus really rose from the dead. But what matters is that, you know, Jesus, that he just is alive in your hearts or that with God, everything is possible if you just put your mind to it. As long as it's not offending anyone, whether the story is fact or fiction, is kind of really irrelevant. And in practice, the moral lessons of the Bernstein Bears are just as valuable as the ones found in the Bible because they achieve the same end goal. And the authoritative voice doesn't come from him, but comes from within. And right now you may be thinking, well, surely, I mean, I'm never going to put the Bernstein Bears on the same level as the Scripture. But I ask you, what does your life say? When the Bible's moral teaching conflicts with your own will, your own desires, which one usually wins out? You know, which voice do you listen to? When you get in an argument with your, with your spouse, what voice are you going to listen to? Your feelings of anger, the, the, the feelings that you feel of, of being misunderstood, or the Word of God that says to consider others better than yourself? What voice do you listen to? What does your life say about what you think your authority comes from? We must recognize that the claims the apostles are making and not disregard them as myth. Because what you believe about the nature of the apostles' teaching and their testimony will not only affect how you read the Bible, but how you live and ultimately where you will spend eternity. Kevin DeYoung in his book called Taking God at His Word, he says this, From the beginning, Christianity tied itself to history. The most important claims of Christianity are historical claims. And on the facts of history, the Christian religion must stand or fall. Peter understood this. He knows that if the apostles' message of salvation through Jesus Christ alone is emptied of its historicity, the authority of of their message will be indistinguishable 
amongst the other voices vying for the church's attention. So first, Peter tells us that we should listen to the apostles' testimony because it's rooted in history and not myth. And secondly, we should listen to the apostles' testimony about Christ because they were eyewitnesses to the majesty of Jesus. Look back in your Bibles to verse 16 through 18. He says, For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we are eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Our fathers heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter reminds the church that this message about Jesus and the surety of his second coming is not made up because he's actually retelling an eyewitness account, something that actually happened, something that he actually saw. It's not something that Peter heard through the grapevine or at the water cooler or just scrolling through his his timeline or his Twitter feed, but it's something that he saw. He saw Jesus, God in the flesh, and that he was coming back again. And if you look at your Bibles, it says, when Peter says, we made known to you his power and coming, again, he's not referencing Jesus' first coming, but the language points us to a second coming, when Jesus will come and he will judge the living and the dead and will remake this world like it was supposed to be in the beginning. And Peter's authoritative voice concerning the majesty of Christ stands or falls on something that actually happened, something he actually witnessed. As many of you know, Peter right now is recalling in verses 16 through 18, he's describing what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus is transfigured or transformed for a moment into something otherworldly, something heavenly. And to help us understand why Peter uses this story, I think it'd be really helpful for us to look back at the actual account that we read in Mark chapter 9. So if you could turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, we'll read the story. And just before this event is recorded in Mark's gospel, Jesus has just predicted that he's going to die, and in three days, he's going to rise again. And after hearing this from, from Jesus, Peter and some of the apostles, they kind of leave, lean over to Jesus and say, Jesus, I, I don't think you understand what you're saying. This is, this is not how it's supposed to go down. And, you know, at this point, again, the disciples really don't know who Jesus is. They don't really understand his whole mission. And Jesus, wanting to clear up any confusion takes three disciples up on the mountain to show them who he really is and that they can trust his word no matter what trials may come. So look with me at Mark chapter 9. We'll start in verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there, is coming, standing here, uh, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after his come in power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up to the high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents for you, one for, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified." And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, 
listened to him, and suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone but with them, but Jesus alone. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So before this event, the disciples had seen many of Jesus' signs. They've seen his power. They've seen glimpses of his majesty through his miracles. But this event, this event was very different. This time, Jesus was unveiled in all his glory. He was dazzling white, which, which symbolizes his purity and his coming victory. And for a moment, Jesus gives his disciples a sneak peek of what, is going to, what it's going to be like when Jesus finally comes back in the clouds, when he comes again in power. This description of Christ's coming glory, again, we see this a lot throughout the scriptures. And in Revelation 19, when uh, the Apostle John has this vision of the, the age to come, he says this, that the new heavens and the new earth have no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The accounts of Jesus' majesty are not cleverly strung together by some Jewish guys just wishing for a better life, but history itself bears witness that Jesus is coming back, and his glory will be our eternal light. And if it wasn't just enough for these disciples just to see something miraculous, to see Jesus arrayed in all his glory, they also are ear witnesses, not just eyewitnesses, but they're ear witnesses to God's affirmation of his son's glory and authority. Turn back to 1 Peter, or sorry, 2 Peter 1, verses 17. And he says this, And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So much like when God spoke at Jesus' baptism, kind of inaugurating his ministry, God speaks again, declaring Christ's deity, and he shares his glory with him. It's really incredible to think about. Just think about it. God the Father, the majestic glory, who shares his glory with no created thing, gives glory and honor to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was, who is, and who is to come. And Peter tells the ch us, the church, that we can believe their message because we are eyewitnesses to the majesty of God in the flesh. You can trust our word, for we heard God's voice and we saw the word of God, arrayed in all his glory. This Jesus, he is the one that we preach to you. He is the one we testify to. And there is no other name upon heaven and on earth by which you can be saved. And he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. So we listen to the apostles' testimony because it's rooted in history, not myth. It's rooted in eyewitness testimony. And thirdly, it's verified by multiple primary sources. It's crucial for us to realize that this testimony is not simply the account of a lonely retired fisherman, you know, just awaiting his death. 
but that his eyewitness testimony is verified by multiple people and by multiple times by many primary sources. I don't know how many of you have written a research paper recently, but I wrote a lot in, in seminary and a lot uh, in college. But if you can kind of take your time machine back with me, if you remember, one of my least favorite things about writing research papers was, of course, the bibliography. It was the thing took the longest, uh, longer than you ever expected, and you're always up at two in the morning trying to find your sources and trying to get it all together and kind of make sure that it was all up to code. Specifically, I know it was really frustrating to me when my teachers required a certain amount of primary sources to support my argument. And as I look back, like, I don't, at my parents' generation, I don't know how any of you guys found primary sources about the internet. It doesn't make any sense. I don't know. Did you go to the library? I don't know if you went to the library or what you went to, but even for me, scrolling through the internet and trying to sift through old English of the 17th and 18th century in their letters, trying to find a quote that's going to support my argument was just a painful task. Yet we all know why our teachers required it. Primary sources are critical to verifying true history. You can't just cite Wikipedia, or you can't just guess on what they may have said. Similarly, uh, we see that Peter and other biblical authors also understood this. And it didn't really matter, uh, again, and it really mattered, again, that their testimony was not alone, but that they referenced multiple sources, multiple eyewitness testimonies, and multiple events. And if you see in verses 12 through 15 of chapter 1, Peter, again, uses a lot of personal pronouns. He says, I intend always to write to you, or I think it right, or I will make every effort. But when he's retelling his eyewitness account, he changes his language to the plural, we. We did not follow cleverly devised myths. We were eyewitnesses. We ourselves heard. We were with him. Peter's not the only witness to the glory of Christ, but James and John were with him as well. Unlike many religions and cults, Christianity is set apart because its claims to historical revelation are not just from a singular person, but they're from multiple sources, you know, the same story at the same time. Peter's not claiming he had a personal vision that only Jesus, that he only saw Jesus in his majesty. But their claims, his claims, were falsifiable because more people were there. But we know that they have never been falsified. The Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, does something very similar when he says this, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to 500 people at one time after he was raised from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, then Christians, above all people, are most to be pitied. So with his last days on earth approaching, Peter didn't want his church to remember a nice story, didn't want them to remember a nice moral lesson, you know, that's just going to kind of pick you up on, on a nice and a rough day. But he wanted them to remember a historical event where the majesty of Jesus was revealed and that this Jesus who made heaven and earth will come back to judge the living and the dead and he will be arrayed in all his glory. So Peter's 
We see Peter's last message to the church was first, listen to our testimony. And secondly, he says, listen to the Scriptures. Why should we listen to the Scriptures? Look with me to verses 19 through 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing, first of all, that the prophecy of Scripture, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter wants us to listen to the Scriptures because the Scriptures are God's sufficient word and they will remain long after he has left this earth. So instead of telling the church to search for their own personal encounter with God on the mountain or tells them to, hey, just, just listen to your heart, Peter points them to an ancient text, an old truth, a sufficient word that will guide them into all truth. Growing up uh, again in Michigan, my family would all, um, most often take vacations up north. And if you don't know what that means, for Michiganders, going up north means that you're going to Traverse City, or you're going to Mackinac, or you're going to go to Sea Lake, Michigan, and you're going to enjoy all that is there. But I remember walking along Lake Michigan uh, one summer, I was probably 10 or so, and I remember walking along by myself, and I would just kind of have conversations with God. And I kind of would put God to the test a little bit. So I'd walk along, and I'd kind of put my foot out a little bit. It's like, Lord, if I would trust you forever, if you would just let me walk on water just for like a split second, just a split second. So I would, I would, I would pray like, I trust you. All right, I put my foot up there, and then, ugh, just sand. But then I would change my tune a little bit. Then I would say, well, Lord, I already do trust you. I trust you. I believe in you. But if and I promise you, I won't tell anybody. I just want this between me and you, this little confirmation that, you know, I know you're real. And so I'd, just for a split second, it doesn't have to be long, just real quick. And so I'd go up again, kind of close my eyes, and then only to have my prayer request denied again. You may laugh at this, and I, and I, but I really think that a lot of us do very similar things now. We may not be asking God to walk on water, but we go through life asking God to prove himself to us so that we may have the faith to walk through a certain season of life. We will pray over and over again just for God to speak clearly to us, to tell us what job to take or what to do with our children. But at the end of the day, it feels like we're talking kind of to a wall. We feel like it's silent. We think that if we serve the God of the universe, we know, why can't he just speak audibly a couple times a year? Like, it can't hurt, right? And if he would just do what he did at the Mount of Transfiguration, I mean, how many more people would believe, right? Why can't he just, you know, humor us a little bit? Yet Peter reminds us that God has revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ and continues to speak to us every day through his infallible, sufficient, and confirmed prophetic word. Do you believe that, church? Do you believe that when you open your Bibles in the morning that you actually hear from God? Do you believe that when you're struggling with sin and with doubt, you can hear the tender voice of Jesus giving you comfort, ready to dispense grace upon your head? Do you hunger and thirst for this word? 
or something else caught your attention? What else are you listening to? Are you listening to him? Or are you listening to the other voices who promise freedom but only deliver bondage and promise peace but only deliver misery? Peter had so much confidence in God's prophetic word that in his final days on earth, he pointed the church to them in order to keep them trusting and to keep them to the end. For Peter knew that all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Church, what voice are you listening to? What voice will you listen to this Memorial Day weekend? Will you listen to the words that never fail, or will you listen to words that pass away? Yet maybe some of you are still kind of wondering, yeah, I want to listen to God, I want to hear His word, but how do we know that this is the full, sufficient word of God? How do we know this isn't just man's eloquent wisdom? First, we see Peter tell us this, that the prophetic word is sufficient, um, the, the sufficient word of God, because they are more fully confirmed by actual historical events. Peter is explaining that the events that he witnessed on the mountain were actually just confirmation of something that was already sure, something already written about uh, before, it was even, before it even happened. To make this clear, again, turn, I've had you move a lot, but turn back in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2, or Psalm 2. And many theologians see the transfiguration as a partial fulfillment of this psalm that points to a day when God would raise up a king, a, a king from the line of David that all nations will gather to and that all nations will worship. Peter wants to remind the church that he is not saying anything more than what the prophets have already said and have already predicted. He says, in effect, hey, I'm just an eyewitness to the trustworthy scriptures just what they said would happen. If you're in Psalm 2, we're going to start in reading in verse 4. He who sits in heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying this, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill or holy mountain. I will tell the decree, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Do you, do you see the similarities in our passage? From ages past, God was foreshadowing a time when the final Davidic king would take the throne and the Lord would decree it on his holy mountain. This king would not be like the other kings, but would one day unite the nations and all the earth would be his possession this king is King Jesus, who is transfigured on the mountain. And when the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that this Jesus is Lord. The prophetic word was already sure, but is now more fully confirmed by the apostolic witness. So one, we can listen to the sufficient words of Scripture because... They're more fully confirmed by eyewitness testimony. And lastly, because the scriptures ultimately did not come from men, but are the very words of God. Look at verse 20 again. 
It says this, knowing first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So in these verses, Peter is saying two critical things in regards to the prophetic word and how it came about and why we can have confidence that when we read these words, we are listening to God's voice and not the voice of men. First he says that no prophecy of Scripture, which means no written down prophetic word, came from the, own, the prophet's own interpretation of the events or visions or dreams that they, they had. Um, so in other words, when Moses or Jeremiah or Isaiah received a vision or a dream or a word from the Lord, their interpretation of these revelations did not come from their own human understanding, but God directed them into the truth. So it's not like the prophet Jeremiah was like a savvy stockbroker when he's forecasting the destruction of Judah. He simply didn't look at Judah's projected earnings or take into consideration the, the, kind of the turnover in leadership and then using his expert forecasting skills and maybe some luck, he, he then sells all his shares before Judah's invaded and bought out by Babylon. It's not like that. Instead, God says this in Jeremiah 1.9. He says, I, the Lord, have put my words in your mouth, Jeremiah. Jeremiah's even interpretation of the events did not come from his own intellect or understanding or discernment, but Jeremiah was given understanding by God. And we see a very stark contrast to Jeremiah's word contrasted with the false teachers that we read about in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 23.16 says this, The false prophets followed their own spirit and spoke visions from their own minds and not from the mouth of the Lord. Everything Jeremiah knew or understood found its origin in the knowledge of God and not from his own interpretation, which then keeps him from error. For if the Old Testament prophets followed their own personal interpretation without the hand of God, we would have no confidence that what they predict or what they said actually will come to pass. We have no confidence that Christ actually is coming back if their words are their own. And second, again, we can see, we can trust the scriptures really are from God and they're really God's word and they're worth obeying is that the Holy Spirit that we've talked about today have kept these men from error as they transcribed God's word. Look at verse 21. For no prophecy of scripture was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter, again, we've got to make sure what, he's, what he is saying and what he's not saying. He's not saying that the prophets were, were robots, you know, they were their puppets, that God kind of supernaturally moved their lips or moved their quills so the scriptures were void of any human touch or error. But what Peter is saying is that the Holy Spirit uses men's intellect, their skills, their personality of these fallible men to write down what is actually divine and infallible. So you may be asking, so who wrote the Bible? Was it men or was it God? Did men write the Bible? Yes, they did. Did God write the Bible? Yes, he did. And again, in one sense, again, it really is a mystery how both, uh, how both the Bible is both human and a divine book. 
But we see this again in, in, in other parts of Scripture. You know, we see it's a mystery how Jesus is both fully God and, and fully man and is without sin. But we see that denying either part of it, we would lose an essential teaching, an essential doctrine of our faith. And we see elsewhere in Scripture that this doctrine is taught about. In Acts one sixteen, Peter says this, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. So did you hear that? The Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David. Yet even if we come to understanding of these things or we, and we know, okay, yeah, this is, this is God's Word, a lot of times we doubt God's power or God's Word um, in our lives. We're kind of like the rich man. If you remember the parable, the rich man and Lazarus, like the rich man who found great comfort in his wealth and didn't give even a second thought to the afterlife. But when he found himself in Hades, he begged Abraham, he begged someone to send someone back to his family to warn him of their future torment that is awaiting them. But Abraham replied to this rich man, and he says this, Hey, they have, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man says, no, Father Abraham, but if you just would send somebody back from the dead, then they, will, then they will repent. If you could just do that, that'd be great. But then Abraham replies with this really, really interesting line. He says this, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So Jesus, being risen from the dead, Again, is just as sure as this prophetic word. Peter, like Jesus, understood that God has spoken. And if we say that we need something more than God's word, then what we say is that God himself is insufficient. So Peter, nearing the end of his life, wants us to listen to two things. He says, first, listen to our testimony because we saw God. And secondly, listen to the scriptures because they're from God. Why does this matter? My wife Jessica and I, as, as Joe said, we got married uh, last year. And at our wedding, we sang this hymn, a hymn called How Firm a Foundation. And that's one of my favorite hymns. And the first verse says this. Maybe you know it. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said? To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. We love this hymn because it reminds us that if we build our lives on anything other than the foundation of the word of God, we will surely fail. And at this church, we have a soul care ministry that is built on the foundation of the word of God. Because we believe that the Word of God is sufficient to do the work of God. And even in my short time being here and being in the soul care ministry, I've seen the Spirit of God work in His Word to save marriages, to give comfort and fear and encourage the crushed in spirit. The Word of God is a light in the midst of darkness, hope in the midst of suffering, and its foundation will never crumble. It will never fail you. Church, because the apostles' testimony is true, 
that this is God's word, you can rest assured that your faith is not in vain and your efforts to be holy are not futile. Because the Bible is true, you don't have to wonder if your efforts to evangelize your neighbors this this summer is in vain. You don't have to wonder if you're missing out of the passions of your flesh by denying them. You don't have to wonder if standing for the truth in the midst of ridicule, maybe amongst your family or friends, is worth the cost. You don't have to worry about it because you know in whom you have believed. And that one day, when the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, you will see your King Jesus coming in the clouds arrayed in all his glory. And you will know that it was all worth it. So I ask you, church, who are you listening to? And what will your last words be when you leave this earth? What will you point the next generation to, even today? Will you point them to your words, your own wisdom from your experience, or will you point them to the all-sufficient, infallible Word of God? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that cuts to our hearts, that shows us the intentions of our hearts and brings life to our dead souls. Father God, right now, I just ask that you would give us a passion for your word right now, that we would love it above all things, for we know that they're your words and not ours. Help us to listen to you today and for all eternity. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Church, if you could stand, I'd like to give you a benediction. And if you have any prayer requests or or needs, again, there'll be some people down here at the front after the service. Church, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless for the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority for all time, now, and forevermore. Amen. God be with you guys.